This is Come Follow Me with David Ridges for the week of February 22nd through the 28th, covering Doctrine and Covenants sections 18 and 19. My name is Kevin Tolley, and I'll be your guest teacher today. I am uh, an institute director working in uh, Riverside, California, and I'm the co-author, along with my good friend, Patrick Bishop, of a volume entitled Apostolic Succession in the Restoration. As we open up sections 18 and 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, I want to emphasize a theme that seems to run through both of these sections. As we study, I just want this to be playing in the back of your mind, this idea of what does God see when he looks at you? In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord himself said that he knoweth all things, for all things are present before him. He says that in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, verse 2. Later in the program price, the phrase shows up again. He says um, that all things are present with me, for I know them all. Now, are we to read these phrases that all things are present before him? Are we to read this spatially, that there's no place in this grand universe that we could go and hide? That there's no dark corners where he can't find us? Or do we read this more chronologically, that all things are present, the past, the present, and the future are all rolled up in his view? If this second is true, it begs the question, what does God see When he looks at you, does he see a stumbling toddler? Does he see an awkward teenager? Does he see um, an aged individual holding the hand of a sweetheart in some rocking chair on a porch somewhere? Or does he see you in the eternities? When God looks at you, what version of you is he looking at if all things are present before him? Um, maybe to partially answer this question, um, back in April 2015, Elder Renlin made this comment. He says, God cares a lot more about who we are and about who we are becoming than about who we once were. I imagine if we take Elder Renlin's uh, comment, um, that when God looks at you, he sees your potential, who you can become. He doesn't necessarily dwell on past mistakes. Although those mistakes can hinder our potential, his concern is where we're going. In fact, we want even our missionaries to put on these these types of divine goggles to see through God's lenses as we look at other people. Missionaries should see potential investigators dressed in white, walking to the temple on some future day. Um, this principle applies to all of us as we go out ministering, as we engage in the work of ministry. We should have the eyes to see others, not who they are now, but who they can become in the future. It's interesting that most prophets, as we uh, as they speak, usually put on these types of lenses. President Nelson, back in June of 2018, speaking to the youth, made this comment. He says, my beloved younger brothers and sisters, I'm going to pause a the quote there. With a president of the church that's well into his 90s, I hope that this idea of beloved younger brothers and sisters applied more than just to the 12 to 18-year-olds, but maybe expand to anyone younger than him. He says, my beloved younger brothers and sisters, you are among the best the Lord has ever sent to this world. You have the capacity to be smarter and wiser and have more impact in the world than any previous generation. You are the hope of Israel, children of the promised day. You can almost hear in that quote that that President Nelson is seeing the rising generation in the same way that God sees them. 
their potential, their wonderful impact that they'll have on the world. When God sees an individual, what does he see? Does he see them as they were, as they are, or as they can become? Keep these sections in mind, or keep this idea in mind, as we look at sections 18 in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants, what God sees. And there's also an invitation uh, to the world to become more like him. These are wonderful sections, but keep in the back of your mind this idea of potential, who you can become. That uh, God has chosen Oliver Cowdery, Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris to be witnesses. Their testimonies will lie in the front of every copy of the Book of Mormon as witnesses of what they've seen, of what they've experienced. They were chosen because God saw in these three individuals something that could make a profound impact on all of us. These sections are directed to the three witnesses. Section 18 is directed to Oliver Cowdery at first, but then it appears as David Whitmer is right there alongside of him. Section 19 focuses primarily on Martin Harris, that God saw something in these individuals that he wanted to teach them to help them become who they needed to be. Section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants was given in Fayette Township um, in New York to Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer. This is just after Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith had moved into the Whitmer home. They were in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and experiencing uh, rising contention and persecution over the work, which began to hinder the work. So Oliver and Joseph moved in uh, to the Whitmer home. Emma Smith wasn't far behind. But this is given um, in the first few days of June of 1829. Now keep this in mind that Oliver Cowtry and Joseph Smith were uh, working steadily on the Book of Mormon. Uh, according to Oliver Cowdery, they had just covered the part in 3 Nephi where uh, the 12 disciples were called to lead the church in, um, among the Nephites in the, uh, in the New World. Traces of this idea that a church is going to be uh, is going to be organized, and that leadership uh, is going to be organized similar to what was found in the Book of Mormon and in the Bible, led by twelve individuals. Uh, as you go through the section uh, eighteen of the Doctrine and Covenants, you'll find similar vocabulary as Third Nephi, as the twelve disciples are described there. There are parallels not only to Third Nephi. But in sections of the, of the Bible, of the New Testament, where the Savior is teaching intimately the Quorum of the Twelve. For instance, taking a look at verses 4 and 5, we can see strong parallels and almost word-for-word -word quoting from Matthew 16, as Jesus tutors the Quorum of the Twelve in Caesarea Philippi. Verses 4 and 5 read, For in them are all things written concerning the foundation of my church, my gospel, and my rock. Wherefore, if you shall build upon my church, upon the foundation of my gospel and my rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. It seems as though these verses are lifted almost directly from Matthew chapter 16, where the Savior teaches Peter. These verses are also the first indication that a church is about to be organized. Before, the focus has always been on the Book of Mormon. The translation of the Book of Mormon has been their primary concern. But now the Savior is beginning to broaden uh, Joseph and Oliver and David's view of what this work will really entail. That a church is going to be organized. 
And as part of that church, we also need a church organization. Look in verse number nine, how the Lord draws Oliver and David into the story. Listen to what it says. And now, Oliver Cowdery, I speak unto you, and also unto David Whitmer, by the way of commandment. For behold, I command all men everywhere to repent, and I speak unto you, even as unto Paul, mine apostle. In this verse, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer are referred to as apostles just like the Apostle Paul. The term apostle had a more of a nebulous definition when the church was first organized. At least eight men held the title initially. A year later, John Whitmers had a ministerial certificate dated 9th of June, 1830, that designated him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Orson Pratt is named another servant and an apostle by Joseph Smith in a letter dated December 2nd, 1830. Um, later in this section, in verse number 37, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer were given this assignment, that ye shall search out the twelve. It appears that their assignment was to find the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. This is the first evidence that a Quorum of the Twelve would be organized in this dispensation. In an interview of, uh, by Fayette Lamphon with Joseph Smith Sr., Joseph Smith Sr. stated that before the translation of the characters, Joseph, his son, was recorded to choose twelve apostles who must be men who believed in the supernatural. He would not err in choosing them, as he would know the proper person as soon as he saw them. Now, Joseph Smith Sr. might be indicating that there would be 12 witnesses of the Book of Mormon. There would be Joseph Smith, the three witnesses, plus the eight witnesses, making 12 witnesses in total of the Book of Mormon. The complete fulfillment of this would come uh, not for another six years, not until February 14, 1835, when the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was organized in this dispensation. David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, and we assume that uh, Martin Harris would later be added into this search committee, would have to find 12 individuals who would later fill the Quorum of the Twelve. This section outlines some requirements or some things that they would need to look for as they um, kept their eyes open for who would be later called into that quorum. Looking between verses 27 and 32, we'll outline six qualities that the Quorum of the Twelve would originally have. In verse 27, it reads, Yea, even twelve, and the twelve shall be my disciples, and they shall take upon them my name. And number one, the twelve are they who shall desire to take upon them my name with full purpose of heart. There's the first one. Number two is in verse 28. And if they desire to take upon them my name with full purpose of heart, number two, they are called to go into all the world to preach my gospel unto every creature. Verse 39 will include number three. And they are they who are, number three, ordained of me to baptize in my name according to that which is written. Verse number 30 will have, excuse me, verse 31 will have number four. Behold, my grace is sufficient for uh, for you. Number four, you must walk uprightly before me and sin not. And behold, they are they who are, number five, ordained of me to ordain priests and teachers. And number six, to declare my gospel according to the power of the Holy Ghost. Here is the beginnings of an outline of, uh, of what the Quorum of the Twelve, what they would accomplish. They would have this desire 
to not only take upon themselves God's name, but to ordain others and to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Oliver Cowdery would take this seriously. In fact, he would write out what was referred to as the apostolic charge. He will write an outline, he will write an outline of the duties and responsibilities of a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. Now, fast forward in time quite a bit uh, to the future. Um, it's now February 1835. We've fast forwarded uh, almost six years from when the time came that Oliver and David were first given this commission to seek out the Twelve. February 14th, 1835, it was a Saturday that uh, Joseph Smith gathered a number of individuals together for a meeting. Uh, following Zion's camp, there was some frustration by those involved who were bothered by its perceived failure. Uh, they traveled to Missouri and back, and it didn't appear like they accomplished mon- much. In response at this meeting, sat- Saturday, February 14th, 1835, Joseph Smith reportedly told the elders assembled in Kirtland, Brethren, some of you are angry with me because you did not fight Missouri, but let me tell you, God did not want you to fight. He could not organize his kingdom with 12 men to open the gospel doors to the nations of the earth unless he took them from a body of men who had offered their lives, who have made as great a sacrifice as did Abraham. Now the Lord has got his 12. In that meeting in February of 1835, um, the, the 12 apostles were called. Uh, Cowdery stated that since the time of his revelation in 1829, quote, our minds have been on constant stretch to find who these 12 were. Later that day, the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris, were called upon to pray and then select those who would make up the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Now, how would that be? Joseph said, um, the three of you have had six years to uh, prepare yourselves, prepare your minds. You are now going to go out in this congregation and find the Quorum of the Twelve. Now, uh, the three who are present were called forth. Oliver Cowdery then delivered the apostolic charge to, to, to three individuals. Now, keep this in mind. Each new apostle, uh, was ordained under the, th- under the hands of the three witnesses. So the three witnesses ordained the original quorum of the twelve, beginning with the three who were present on that date. Tradition has that Oliver Cowdery ordained Lyman E. Johnson. David Whitmer went out in the audience, chose and ordained Brigham Young, and Martin Harris went out in the audience, chose and ordained Heber C. Kimball. Now, what's interesting is that day they were called upon to go out in the audience and find the twelve. They had six years to prepare themselves, and they had to go out in the audience. Now, uh, what was challenging is only three members of the twelve were in attendance in that meeting. Uh, six more will be called on a subsequent meeting. There was a meeting held the next day, February 14th, and over the next two months, the remaining members of the twelve were also called, the remaining three, who were not in Kirtland at the time. They were out on missions. Now, as I mentioned before, Oliver Cowdery delivered what was called the Apostolic Charge. He took Section 18 as um, seriously and wrote out a charge with, that included qualifications for what the Quorum of the Twelve would, would do, expanding on this list of six items that's outlined in Section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, um, uh, in this dispensation, we've had 102 members of the Quorum of the Twelve uh, to date. Uh, 
every single member of the Quorum of the Twelve has been read the apostolic charge that was written by Oliver Cowdery. That is read to every single new member of the Quorum of the Twelve. In fact, there is some evidence, uh, very strong evidence, that uh, they're giving, given individual charges written uh, by the First Presidency and members of the Twelve also, that they write a specific charge for each new member of the Quorum of the Twelve that comes in. They're given the apostolic charge, that's fairly easy to find, written by Oliver Cowdery, and then an individual charge of what they are personally supposed to accomplish during their ministry in the Quorum of the Twelve. Now, um, this would be nerve-wracking to be called up in a meeting in February of 1835 and had the president of the church, Joseph Smith, say, your time's up. You've had plenty of time to look and to watch and to observe. Who are the members of the Quorum of the Twelve? Undoubtedly, some of these phrases in this, um, in this section probably rang through uh, Oliver and David and even Martin's minds as they went out to that audience um, with this charge to find the quorum, to seek out the twelve. Uh, these were not perfect men, but they were individuals who had potential to do great things. In this section, give some pretty strong advice to Oliver and to David and to Martin. Go back to verse numbers 10, to verse 10, 13, 14, and 15, and 16. Verse 10, remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Let's go back to our original question. What does God see when he looks at an individual? I propose that he sees their potential, who they could become. They needed to go out and see beyond the surface to find individuals who could do miraculous things because they had the potential to do so. Um, many of us have sat down under the hands of a patriarch, and uh, that patriarch will put on those lenses for a minute and see a glimpse of our potential, who we can become, and list out blessings that we can obtain. Remember what President Uchtdorf said, Back in November, excuse me, October of 2011, he sees, he says this, God sees you not only as a mortal being on a small planet who lives for a brief season. He sees you as his child. He sees you as the being you are capable and designed to become. He wants you to know that you matter to him. As we look through these sections, pay close attention to what the Lord says about individuals' potential. Let's focus now on Martin Harris in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants. There is some speculation of when this revelation was given. It was either given in the summer of 1829 or possibly in March of 1830. But we know this all surrounds Martin Harris. Most scholars will put it in the summer of 1829, just prior to the completion of the negotiations of printing the Book of Mormon. Summer of 1829 was a busy summer. Joseph Smith is frantically trying to complete the Book of Mormon, get a, get a contract uh, to have it published, to find a printer, and to figure out how to finance it. Joseph Smith and Martin Harris negotiated with E.B. Grandin of Palmyra to print 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon for about $3,000. Martin used his, far, his farm as collateral for the printing. Apparently, he was... Uh, <laughs> had all sorts of confidence after becoming one of the three witnesses and having an angelic visitation from uh, uh, from Moroni. Uh, 
Now, putting his farm up as collateral for the Book of Mormon would cause a lot of tension between Martin and his wife, Lucy. There was also already tension between them. But to put up the, one of the finest farms of Palmyra up uh, as collateral would have put his wife in a tizzy who didn't have a strong testimony as Martin did in the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. The only possible way to publish the Book of Mormon was if Martin mortgaged his farm. If Martin went forward with a mortgage of his farm for the printing of the Book of Mormon and the Book of Mormon didn't sell, he would not only lose his farm, but it would really jeopardize his marriage, which was already on the rocks. Seeking guidance, he spoke with Joseph, who received this revelation. On August 25th, 1829, Martin mortgaged his property to Grand as payment for the publication of the Book of Mormon. Uh, this revelation probably was dictated sometime in the summer of 1829, sometime after uh, Joseph, Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris had had uh, their visionary experience with the plates, and sometime before August 25th when the contracts were signed. So sometime July or August, this revelation most likely uh, was completed. But there is another story that happened almost a year later, in late of March 1830. This is uh, comes from the late reminiscence of Joseph Knight. Um, when the Book of Mormon was published, it was published on the 26th of March 1830. Uh, it came off the printing press and became uh, available to purchase on the 26th, and Martin was desperately trying to sell copies of the Book of Mormon to redeem the mortgage for his farm for selling uh, by selling copies of the Book of Mormon. Unfortunately, sales of the Book of Mormon did not take off as anyone, like, like we had all hoped. Um, uh, one day, apparently, Joseph Smith uh, spotted Martin Harris late in March of 1830, so just days after the publication and, and the book became available, uh, somewhere near, near Palmyra. According to Joseph Knight, Martin was carrying several copies of the Book of Mormon. He said, quote, the books will not sell for nobody wants them. And Joseph, uh, and told Joseph, I want a commandment. Now keep in mind that, uh, the Book of Commandments, the original name for the Doctrine and Covenants, was called the Book of Commandments because there was connotations between commandments and revelation. So when Martin runs up to Joseph and says, I want a commandment, what he's saying is, I need further validation. I need further proof that, that this will sell. Joseph's reply, um, Refer to Martin to the previous revelation. So he says, go back and take a look at the previous revelation you'd already received, section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, some want to put uh, section 19 at this point, and there's some evidence for that, but most will put it back in the summer of 1829. He says, look at the previous revelation, quote, fulfill what you have got. Um, but uh, Martin had nothing to do with it. He says, but I must have a commandment. He wants an additional commandment. Now, with all of this in mind, that Martin is seeking a commandment, a revelation, some validation that he's on the right track, take a look at section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In fact, as you go through the Doctrine and Covenants, look how often the Lord says to Martin, I command you. Um. This is either A, to encourage uh, Martin to mortgage his farm, summer of 1829, or in response for the Book of Mormon not selling, that Martin was pleading for a commandment. But it's perfectly clear that this is 
something to bolster Martin's faith. But look in verse number 13, wherefore I command you. Verse 15, therefore I command you. Verse number 20, wherefore I command you. 21, I command you. Verse 25, I command thee. Verse 26, I command thee. Verse 28, I command thee. Verse 32, um, and the last commandment. And so throughout this is this idea that God is validating um, Martin's course of action, even though with his limited perspective, he can't see what's going to happen next. This is, in a very real way, a tender mercy for Martin. Now, if we look at the last three verses of the section, we're going to tackle this section of the Doctrine and Covenants backwards. Notice this. The last three verses, starting in verse number 39. Behold, canst thou read this without rejoicing, and lift up thy heart for gladness. This section is outlined in the last three verses of the section. So, he says, canst thou... Uh, uh, canst thou read this without rejoicing? Verses 1 through 20 is a series of things that Martin needs to rejoice about. There's information about, um, about the atonement. There's information about the restoration of the gospel. Things he should be really happy about. Verses 21 through 28 describe this scenario. Or canst thou run about longer as a blind guide. Verses 21 through 28 outlines things that makes individuals blind. We'll talk more about them in a second. And then finally, verse 41, or canst thou be humble and meek and conduct thyself wisely before me? Um, verses 29 through 38 have to do with humility and how to become humble. And so there's our outline. Section one, rejoice, what you should rejoice about. Number two, what causes you to be blind? And number three, humility. So let's go to this first one. And I'm just going to pick out one or two things out of each of these sections. Verses 1 through 20, let's take a look at some very popular verses. And I'm just going to focus in on one phrase. In verses 1 through 20, there is one section that is highlighted among seminary students. And uh, <laughs> this just stands out in this section um, as, as as significant section of verses. Verses 16 through 19, here is the Savior outlining um, a personal firsthand account of the atonement. All of our other accounts come from second person, from prophets who report on uh, the events or the effects of the atonement. But here is the Savior himself outlining what it was like to go through the atonement. In fact, let's look at verse number 18 specifically. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would not that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Now that last phrase right there, that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink, becomes a phrase that is sprinkled throughout the, all the scriptures. In fact, if you remember, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 51, there is an, this section becomes very significant. This is one part where they talk about that bitter cup. Now, we have to imagine that each of us has a cup in your hand, spiritually speaking, that every sin that you've ever committed, uh, is, the result is a drop in the cup. Now, not all sins are weighted the same. Some are much more grievous than others. In fact, we even talk about this in our vocabulary, little white lies, as opposed to um, heavy deception. 
Um, but some sins will drop to the bottom of your cup. Others, lighter sins, will come to the surface. But listen to what it says in Isaiah 51. 51, verse number 17. It says, Awake and awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Notice what it calls the cup here. The cup of his fury. You have to ask yourself, what makes God mad? What makes God upset? Well, the answer is everything inside of your cup. Every time you sin, a drop goes inside of your cup. He says, thou has drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Now notice the cup has been renamed. It's the cup of his fury and the cup of trembling. Apparently, uh, the day is going to come where you have to pay the piper, right? Where justice is going to be served. And according to this analogy, every individual needs to drink out of their own cup. And apparently, drinking from this cup causes you to tremble. Now, again, the cup is called all sorts of different things throughout the scriptures. Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 33, Jeremiah 25, 15, both speak about this cup. But here it's called the cup of trembling and the cup of his fury. It also refers to the dregs that are at the bottom of the cup. Now, this is what's, uh, I live in Southern California, and when we first moved into our house, we decided to plant an orange tree in the backyard, not realizing that all, not all oranges are the same. We expected to go out there and peel oranges and uh, live the life of Southern California. But um, we planted the type of orange that you juice, not the type that you peel and eat. And it wasn't for years before we realized this. So we might we decided to make up for our mistake, and we bought a juicer. Um, my kids loved going out, stripping the oranges off the orange tree, and using the juicer and making freshly squeezed orange juice. They drink it for a, a short amount of time, and they put the rest in the fridge. And there's something about the freshly squeezed orange juice that came from our yard. It would separate almost instantaneously. Uh, one time I opened the fridge and looked at that orange juice and it had various layers. The top was almost clear. The middle was orange. The bottom was a dark, deep orange and very chunky. <laughs> Apparently the kids didn't know how to strain the orange juice at all, but there was chunks at the bottom of it. Now think about this. Here's the Lord saying, there is a cup called the cup of fury, the cup of trembling. And the day is going to come. You better wake up from, from your sinful life and be careful because that cup You'll have to drink out of it, even the dregs at the bottom. Now, the dregs they're referring to here isn't pulp from orange juice. It's probably the crystallized portion of wine as you as you uh, ferment wine, um, as you um, during the process, uh, small crystals will form, jagged crystals. And he says you're going to have to drink that jagged pulp at the bottom, even the hor the results of horrible sin. But Isaiah has a happy ending. If we go to Isaiah 51, verse 22, it makes this comment. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord and thy God, that pleaded the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink of it again. Here's a promise from Isaiah that God will remove your cup if you simply turn to him. This cup shows throughout the scriptures. If you remember the Savior walking into the Garden of Gethsemane, the book of Matthew, he walks in and he 
for a moment says to God, he is not sure if he could drink the bitter cup. If you remember the last flavor that the Savior had in his mouth before he passed away on the cross, they took vinegar, uh, a bitter liquid, and he drank um, this bitter liquid right before he passed away. Now, if you smell vinegar, uh, this usually usually smell these. I always associate it with Easter eggs, using vinegar to help dye the eggs. Um, that bitter smell. Some drink vinegar a teaspoon in the morning to help their digestion or help their health, but vinegar makes you tremble. When the Savior came to the Americas in 35 chapter 11, they didn't recognize him. Do you remember? Despite the fact that the Father introduced him three times, when the Savior appears, they think he's an angel. And so in 35 chapter 11 verse 11, the Savior outlines his credentials and he says, I am the one who drank out of the bitter, took the bitter cup. Sometimes when I take the sacrament, I think of that bitter cup. Now, I understand that in early uh, days of the restoration, the sacrament was, uh, wine was used in the sacrament. But today we use water, a very clear liquid. And in my mind's eye, I can imagine myself trading cups with the Savior. That I put down my bitter cup. And he returns back to me a clear cup, a cup with clear liquid. Um, the, the Savior is willing to trade cups with us. In this report um, that he gives to Martin Harris about, uh, about the atonement, he makes sure that he says um, that he would, that I might not drink of the bitter cup and shrink or turn back from this bitter cup. This is the reason to rejoice that we can trade cups with the Savior. The next section of section 19 is information that makes an individual blind. Now, if I do one other cross-reference to help us understand Dr. Covenant's 19 a little bit better, go to 2 Nephi, uh, excuse me, 2 Peter, uh, chapter 1. There is a list of qualities in 2 Peter, chapter 1. Qualities that will sound very familiar from our recent study of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 4. Listen to this. And besides this, giving all diligence to your faith, uh, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. He then outlines a litany of qualities. Temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly uh, kindness, and charity. Later in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, it says, but he that lacketh these things is blind. At the end of this section, he talks about being a blind guide. If we take this list of qualities and we turn them into antonyms, section four of the Doctrine and Covenants has these qualities and it says you'll have an eye single to the glory of God. But without these qualities, we become blind. And in section, or excuse me, section 19, verse 39, Martin Harris is called a blind guide. Now take a look at some of these qualities. I'm just going to emphasize one. It seems as though if charity helps you see, the opposite, selfishness, blinds an individual. As I mentioned before, Martin Harris and Lucy Harris, their marriage was on the rocks. And verse 25 is also often a verse that we look, we, we kind of glance over really fast, but it says, and again, I command thee, that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Apparently, Martin, 
was beginning to cover covet his neighbor's wife. Now, in 1834, um, uh, a book was published and uh, that was very critical of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The book was entitled Mormonism Unveiled. In there, it includes an interview with Lucy Harris, where she insinuates an individual who Martin was spending way too much time with, and she was pretty upset about it. It's interesting that Martin's selfish behavior could make an individual blind. Throughout this, sec- throughout this section of this section of section 19 um, are qualities that Martin Harris uh, has that is making him blind and blind to eternal things. That uh, Martin Harris was having trouble at this point. Now, if Martin was seeking a commandment, validation for his faith, here is the Savior intimately telling him, I know your heart and where it's at. I know what you can become and what is blocking you from living up to your potential. And in these verses are a few things that uh, stop him from living up to what he could become. The final section, this idea that thou canst be humble. Um, one aspect is, uh, take a look in verse number 28. And again, I command thee that thou shalt pray vocally as well as in thine heart. One aspect of humility is that we need to be able to turn to the, turn to the Savior, understand that he knows us, our flaws and everything about us, and seek his guidance. God is uh, intimately aware of the details of our life. He wants us to live up to who we can become. These sections is uh, teach some powerful lessons, but I think one of the first and foremost lessons that is being taught is God sees who you are, who you can become, um, and wants us to see others in a similar light. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.